If you would, please join me in taking out your Bibles once again and turning to Acts chapter 8. As we turn now to God's Word, let's return to Him once again in prayer. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that is before us. We pray that You would open our eyes to see its truth, open our ears to hear its truth, open our minds to know the truth, our hearts to embrace the truth. And would You strengthen our hands and feet to live our lives um, in response uh, to Your truth that is found in your word and supremely in the one who said, indeed, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Be pleased now, Father, to feed your people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, last week uh, we left off with uh, Stephen's death and many folks uh, in the world would think, man, that is a failure. I mean, this Christian church, and you've got one of its early leaders dying? Uh, how could that be considered successful? It's, it's, it's failure. Well, I want to take us all back for a moment to 1970, to the seventh manned mission of the Apollo program, the third mission to the moon, Apollo 13. Uh, some of you may know the story, and Oxygen tank exploded on day two, and a movie, uh, of all things, called Apollo 13 was made, and, and there's a scene where the director, the flight director in Mission Control says this, we never lost an American astronaut in space, and we're not going to lose one on my watch. Failure is not an option. That is so American, isn't it? Failure is not an option. But here, it's the end of Stephen's ministry, Saul. There's failure, there's, there's death, there's persecution of the church, and there's the scattering of the church. Does that sound familiar? Who else? Maybe the arrest, the trial, the death of Jesus, the scattering, as it were, of the Disciples, and, and from the perspective of the world, absolute failure. But we saw last week Stephen died looking to Jesus in confidence and looking like Jesus with compassion. Indeed, it provides an example and a pattern for how we are to be prepared to die. I want to read again verses 1 through 3 and, and make a couple of comments um, before we move on. Uh, Acts chapter 8 uh, beginning kind of at the middle of verse 1. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. I wanted to follow up. You know, last week was about joy. Uh, great joy as you look to Jesus and look like Jesus. And, and I think the sermon ended along the lines of uh, what kind of joy is this that counts it a blessing to suffer? This is a joy of a soul that's forgiven and free. 
But you know, if you notice what it says, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Yes, for the believer and the death of a believer, there can be joy, but there is great sorrow and grief. But the Christian can look in the face of death and see it, as the song says, as sweet victory. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's the result of sin and evil. But God has conquered sin and death through the person and work of Jesus. But I just wanted to, before we move on, to to acknowledge that devout men made great lamentation. They were sad and sorrowful. They mourned the death of this man. And yet it's this man's death that laid the foundation, as it were, for a worldwide mission. We're moving from Stephen to Philip. Stephen had declared that God had been gracious to his people, and yet his people had been rebellious and stubborn toward him. Stephen also, as I mentioned a moment ago, wanted his hearers to remember that God was not tied to one specific place. He was always with his people, wherever his people were. Here we are in Acts. We're looking back at what God has done in Jesus Christ. We're looking ahead to what God is doing and will do in his church through his Holy Spirit. Again, why are we doing Acts now? Well, we here at Grace and Peace in 2019 are part of the ongoing expansion of the church. And in that way, Acts really does help to anchor us to our history. But it also orients us to our future as we see God continuing to be at work building his church. Well, here in this narrative account of Philip's ministry, both in the north and in the south, we're going to see two examples of early Christian evangelism. We're getting the good news out about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection for sinners. And in considering them, we're going to see something of the nature of the gospel, the nature of evangelism, and finally the nature of the new life. Uh, Next week, we'll come back to verses 9 through 25, but I want us to now listen to uh, verses 4 through 8 and then uh, 26 through 40. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. In verse 26, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. 
Now the passage of of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep when he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I asked you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, the, through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Well, let's look first at the nature of the gospel. Primarily, we're going to see that in verses 4 through 8. Notice there's a message. He's preaching the word. Again, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And here, I think we're going to see three characteristics of the word, the gospel. It's the nature of of, of the gospel to spread. Uh, Here's a threefold chain of cause and effect. Death results in persecution, and persecution results in scattering. Scattering. Not like someone would scatter ashes into the wind or ashes at sea, but rather like a farmer scatters seed. You may remember in Mark chapter 4 of the parable of the, the seed that the farmer scattered. And all he did was go to sleep and he rose up and stuff happened and then there was growth and he didn't know how. But when it was harvest time, it was harvested. That kind of scattering. You see, the scattering of Christians was followed, was was linked to, inseparable from the scattering of the good seed of the gospel. You know, in some ways, the worst thing that could happen for the spread of the gospel is success and a comfortable life. Think about that. It tends such that that where there is great persecution, especially of a nation's leadership or the government or the system, that people come to faith in Christ. Sure, there's underground churches, there's house churches, but people are coming to faith and growing in faith because it's not comfortable, it's not easy. The church is not viewed successful, and yet the gospel scatters and lives are changed. One 18th century German Bible scholar wrote that the wind increases the flame. You've seen that, right? The wind increases the flame. And you think of China, maybe in the late 1940s. It's the nature of the gospel to spread. It's also the nature of the gospel to overcome, to conquer. Uh, The gospel defeats spiritual oppression. Look at verse 7. For unclean spirits came out of those who were possessed. That's in response to the proclaiming of the gospel. 
It also defeats ignorance and unbelief. And we'll look at that in a little bit in verses 35 and 36. He's ignorant. He's not believing. And yet the proclamation of the gospel conquers that. You look at where he went. He went down to the city of Samaria. Uh, Interestingly, going down meant, in this case, he went north. He went up to Samaria, that bitter ethnic rivalry between Jews and Samaritans. And remember in John chapter 4, where Jesus deals with the Samaritan woman at the well, she says the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. It's a half race. It's half Jew, half Gentile. It comes about when Assyria conquered the northern king of Israel in seven. 22 BC and resettled that region with others and there was an intermarrying uh, that took place. And yet Jesus reached out to Samaritans. He reached out to outsiders, to lepers, to this woman at the well. And here is Philip following in Jesus' wake. The gospel overcomes prejudice between Jew and Samaritan. As we will see later in terms of... um, Uh, Peter and his understanding of the gospel going out uh, to the Gentiles as well. It's the nature of the gospel to spread. It's the nature of the gospel to conquer. It's also the nature of the gospel to produce joy. To produce joy. Look at verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Why? The gospel was proclaimed to a multitude. Look at how verse 8. 39, the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. There's public proclamation and there's private proclamation. And what is the result? Joy, joy. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great uh, English uh, pastor and preacher of the uh, 1900s, um, wrote a a, a book uh, that many of us are familiar with called Spiritual Depression. And in it, he's addressing that one of the chief kind of uh, non-advertisements for Christianity is a lack of joy. Now, Lloyd-Jones in that book, Spiritual Depression, um, speaks about true Christian joy. Not the the happy, smiley-faced joy that ignores the reality of life in a sinful and fallen world, but joy that's brought about by someone being in a right and restored relationship with God through Jesus. That kind of joy that counts it a blessing to suffer. That kind of joy that gives the prisoner the song. That kind of joy that can look death in the face and and see it as sweet victory. It's the nature of the gospel to produce that kind of joy. Joyless Christianity really is not possible. It's joy in the midst of suffering. It's joy in the journey. Now here, we make a transition from the message of good news. He proclaimed the word to the method of getting it announced. To proclaim it, to declare it, to preach it, to share the gospel is evangelism. And so let's spend a few moments now looking at the the nature of evangelism. Uh, The message was the word and the means are preaching. Preaching the word to bring good news. We've seen public preaching And we've seen private preaching, public instruction and private instruction. And here in Samaria, verses 4 through 8, it's public proclamation. He proclaimed to them. He heralded to them. 
And the crowds did what? Interestingly, the crowd paid attention to what was being said. I can't help but think of in this day of distraction and short attention spans, here's an example. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said. And they paid attention also because what they saw happening as what was as Philip was proclaiming, things were happening. There's a word and deed ministry. There's physical misery and spiritual bondage that are being dealt with. Philip is seeing the demonstration of the power by lives being changed. Yes, we are to proclaim verbally the gospel. And yes, the gospel proclamation absolutely has to include words. Faith comes by hearing. But you know what helps to validate the word is a changed life. Here are lives changing. And we can even see the apostles in the message they're proclaiming. Folks knew that they used to be afraid. They used to be running from Jesus at at his arrest, at his death. And now They are boldly proclaiming Jesus. Something has changed in their life. And we're about to see in a couple of weeks a huge change in the life of the man who was attempting to destroy the church becomes a man who is building the church. So where do we see miraculous signs today? I would argue that we see them in the church. We see lives changing We see sin being confessed, sin being forgiven. We see people reaching out to one another. Can you help me? I'm hurting. I'm struggling. If any of you have ever wrestled with sin and know how hard it is to forsake a particular besetting sin, I'm sure we all do. When it happens and when there's a great, as it were, victory, it's a miracle. It wasn't you or your willpower. Somehow the Lord changed your heart so that that which initially, that, that, that had grabbed you now longer, no longer grabs you, but something else grabs you. Notice that it's not, in adi- it's in addition to, uh, also in addition to public proclamation, there's personal testimony. And we see that in that desert road in the middle of nowhere. See, The gospel was proclaimed in the city and the gospel was proclaimed out in the middle of nowhere on a dusty highway, as it were. Philip is prepared. Philip is obedient to the direction, the providential ordering. God is in control. It reminds me of when we looked at the book of Ruth. You remember uh, Boaz um, and Ruth meet and and scripture in Ruth 2, 3. It just so happened. Do you think it just so happened that Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch as he was reading Isaiah? Of course not. God is in control. He is sovereign. He is orchestrating everything. Philip is pursuing an opportunity to share Christ. He's talking now privately and patiently. and he, We see that the nature of evangelism is 
is all about Christ. Whether it's in public or in person, whether with a large crowd or with just one other person, the heart of evangelism is at the gospel and at the heart of the gospel is Jesus Christ. Philip in the north and Philip in the south is not proclaiming be a better, become a better you, have your best life now. He's proclaiming Christ and him crucified. It's interesting um, for the sake of his name, 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 but cross, cross, cross. Paul says, I, I want to do nothing but proclaim Christ and him crucified. He proclaimed, we see in verse five, proclaim to them the Christ, not morality or religion in general, but the gospel in particular. And in verse 35, he told him the good news about Jesus. Isaiah 53, how many times have we heard Isaiah 53 read here? I would say probably a half dozen to 10 times a year. Why? Because the suffering servant that Isaiah portrays we now understand to be none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what Philip proclaims to the Ethiopian. Now, whereas verses 4 through 8 show us aspects of the nature of the gospel, and 26 through 40 show us aspects of the nature of this new life. And we're going to see this in the life of the Ethiopian unit. You see, there's the nature of the gospel, the nature of evangelism, but now... We're going to see in particular the nature of the new life. Now, where do we see new life? Well, stick with me here. The pattern. We're going to see this man come to faith in Christ. And we don't know what the rest of his life looks like, but it's probably growing in faith in Christ. And it reminds me of our shorter catechism, question and answer 86, what is faith? Faith is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel, right? We receive and rest upon Christ alone. And my friends, when do you stop resting? When do you stop resting? No, we're always resting in Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, you see, the gospel, as this Ethiopian eunuch heard and as the people in Samaria heard, is not just the message that someone needs to hear and believe to begin the Christian life. It's, it's the good news that someone needs to continue to hear and believe all of our lives. And so I believe that how this Ethiopian eunuch receives the gospel can show us something about how we need to continue to, as it were, receive the gospel and how we rest upon the gospel alone. We rest upon Christ alone. So I think we're going to learn something about this new life by looking at the Ethiopian evangelist, excuse me, the Ethiopian eunuch who was with Philip the evangelist. Okay, look at verse 31. The new life eagerly admits ignorance and need of instruction. Look at verse 31 again. And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? He did not hesitate to admit his need of guidance and instruction. John Calvin, in looking at this passage, says this. He acknowledged his ignorance freely and frankly. How many of us want to acknowledge our ignorance 
freely and frankly. And yet this is where all progress in understanding the faith begins. Why? Because it requires us to subdue pride and our natural tendency to to hide our lack of understanding. I don't know about you all, but there seems to be a trend these days of on the first day of class, if you're ever instructing people, a lot of times students think they know it and they don't need to be instructed. But here is this wealthy, powerful government official saying, can someone guide me? Can someone help me? Because God honors a sincere seeker of truth. And there is somewhat seemingly on the surface of a contradiction in Romans 3.11. There is no one who seeks God. And yet Isaiah 55.11, seek the Lord while he may be found. No one seeks, but seek the Lord It's like the hymn, I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. He moved my heart to seek him, seeking me. God honors the sincere seeker of truth. To be sure, he changes the heart to want to seek the truth. Faith begins with a willingness to be instructed. I don't know it all. I want to learn. Because you see, God is giving his church two great gifts, the scriptures and teachers. And who's the primary teacher? The Holy Spirit. You've heard that prayer that we sometimes use. May your word be our rule. May your Holy Spirit be our teacher. But God also gives good gifts to the church in the form of teachers, pastors, and elders who teach the word. I want you to notice before we move on that Philip does not answer questions that the Ethiopian eunuch is not asking. Oh my, how convicting is that for someone like me? Are you taking the time to listen to someone really? Clearly, thoughtfully, deliberately, patiently? Or are you just like me sometimes ready to answer the question they're not asking, but the question you think they should be asking? Philip does not answer the question he's not asking. He's asking. He's answering the question. He's listening to people. So the new life eagerly admits ignorance and a need of instruction, but the new life eagerly seeks to understand. Look at verse 34. About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this about himself or about someone else? Here he's seeking to understand, to develop a more growing comprehension of the faith. Remember in Acts chapter 2, what did we see? We saw the people devoted to the apostles' teaching. And it's one thing to admit your need, that you need instruction, and it's another thing to do something about it. Uh, Learning is work. Learning requires effort. Now children, help me out with this. You go to a library, and what's a library full of? Tell me. Books. And what do you do with books? You read them, right. The library also has a lot of shelves with audio, like CDs, right? And so what are you supposed to do with those? Listen to them, right. And the world is full of people, right? And what are we called to do with them? 
with one another and indeed others. In love, yes, engage with them. Come alongside them. Open our lives to them. Today, I think, in particular, people are ignorant of the faith. Ignorant of the faith. Have you ever taken time to ask people questions? What do you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? Can you help me understand why you believe what you do? People are ignorant. You know, we, in our series in, in uh, Mark's gospel, it was, who is Jesus? What did Jesus come to do? And how should someone respond to the person and work of Jesus? It was the shortest catechism. Because why? Ignorance of Jesus, ignorance of the gospel is rampant. Not only out there, but also in the church. The new life admits ignorance and need of instruction. The new life eagerly seeks to understand. The new life gets the book off the shelf and reads it. The new life gets the CD off the shelf and listens to it. The new life goes to people and asks for help. The new life also eagerly takes action on what is learned. Look at verse 36, his third question. What prevents me from being baptized? The answer is, of course, Philip would say nothing. Let's, let's, you're going to be baptized. Yes. His understanding led him to action. He desired to be baptized. You know, it's good to be wise. It's good to be discerning and patient and slow. But sometimes being slow to act reveals not caution, but spiritual laziness. And oh, how we need to ask the Lord, show us when to speak, when not to speak, when to act, when not to act. So in this narrative account of Philip's ministry, north and south, we see something of the nature of the gospel, something of the nature of the new life, something of the nature of evangelism. And all of this comes after what? The failure of the world would say, the failure of Stephen's ministry. So we need to go back to where we begin, to the Apollo 13 mission and the subject of failure. Statement number one, failure is not an option for us. Rather, it's who we are. You see, we don't have the option. We are so sinful that Jesus had to die for us. There is no other option. We, as members of the sinful, fallen human race, we are failures. Failures to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Failures to love our neighbor as ourself. And yet, interestingly, it's through the death of Jesus, what the watching world called failure, that we have life and success, true everlasting and eternal success in being in a right and restored relationship with God through faith in Jesus. It's through Jesus' death that he brings us to life. And it's through our ongoing death, as it were, every day that we live. So failure is not an option for us. It's who we are. Oh, how thankful we should be 
for the one who rescues us out of our failure. But secondly, and finally, failure is not an option for God. It is not possible for God to fail. You see, God has never lost anyone who comes to him through repentance and faith in Jesus. You see, unlike that mission control director who hit his hand, as it were, on the chalkboard after describing what needed to be done and said, not on my watch. We've never lost a man and we're not on my watch. Failure is not an option. It really isn't an option for God. He's always successful. His word always accomplishes what it sets out to do. You see, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Oh, my friends, where do you find yourself today? Where do you find yourself today before the Lord? Look at the proclamation of the gospel in public, lives changing, great joy resulting. Look at the proclamation of the gospel in person, in private, life changing, joy being produced. My friends, the good news of the gospel has gone north, it's gone south, and for those of you that are have received and are resting on Christ alone for salvation this very moment. The gospel has made its way here. May God be pleased to use us to extend that message, that hope, that promise to a lost and dying world that's all around us. Amen. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we were so wicked and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge that we are so loved and treasured that Jesus was glad to die for us. Indeed, those who believe and trust in Jesus are the joy set before him as he headed to the cross. We thank you, Father, that Jesus took your curse so that we could receive your blessing. And what an amazing exchange as Jesus is both our substitute and the sacrifice. Father, may your word that we have just heard take up residence in our life and change us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, our suffering Savior and our risen and reigning Lord, for your glory and for the good of your people now and forever. Amen. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, we can read.